Okay, so just to introduce Genesis 1, because God's an author. I'm, a, I'm an author. I, I, I've written books. I don't know whether that makes me an author. I'm just a pastor who writes books, but I author things uh, and, and print them up. And now and again, it's interesting getting an author's perspective because people read a book and they feel like they know the author. They know all about the author. Um, uh, but there's more to a human being than, than what's in their book. There's more to God than is what is in Scripture. Interesting concept. Uh, because we feel like we've read the book, we know all about God. And so we, we create these beautiful words like uh, omniscience and omnipresence because it means more than we can understand or imagine, but because we put a word on there, now we understand it. Now we can limit God to the box of this theological word. And I cut my teeth as a, as a new believer for the first five years. My, my devotional material was uh, Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, biblical theology, relational theology. So I love that stuff. I love the logic of it. But even, even with all that love of... Uh, the, it's, it's almost a mathematical mindset. It's a Western mindset overlaying a Hebrew picture. What it does is it, it, it can, if we're not careful... Uh, create frameworks that limit who God is because he's bigger than all of that. He's bigger than our understanding. We struggle when we come to Genesis, for example. You think there's six days there and one spare. The geological record seems to show something quite different. What's that all about? Because time says one thing. I don't know whether you've understood the science of this. Um, Einstein's gone there. Time, light, gravity, M uh, E equals MC squared, all that kind of stuff. We... Uh, mathematicians sort of love. But think that through. Six, is it six days or, it's, or is it 13.5 billion years? How old is the earth? Well, the answer is probably yes. Because time, for example, the current at the highest level, which is way beyond me, obviously, I'm just a pastor who runs a cafe now. <laughs> but uh, time is linked to light, is linked to gravity, yes? That's basic high school physics. Now they've grappled with the, with the concept of that in the fact that time is actually linked to gravity. So what that means is if I fly away from Earth and I go to Alpha Centauri or wherever Lost in Space went to in the 60s, by the time I come back, you've aged a lot more than I've aged because I've gone away and time is relative to the place, right? So, therefore, gravity, is formed, gravity forms time because if I'm not relational to the gravity, then I'm outside of that. So this God who's beyond the universe... Is also beyond our time. So an omniscient, omnipresent God actually makes perfect physical sense. A day is a thousand years, that's minimising it. Because he's beyond our time. He's everywhere and everywhere, all at once. So how does that God then communicate with a guy like Moses on the top of a mountain over 40 days who writes in comic strips and then tries to relate that story to him? It's very difficult. It's difficult for us because we're looking at Scripture now uh, Moses penned it on the mountain back then. God was trying to describe to him what happened back here. We're looking at it from here through the lens of him and then to Genesis. And our lens is Western, time, motion studies, all that kind of stuff. So you can understand we're going to get some tensions with all of this sort of thing. So when I write a book, now and again, I wrote one called um, Engaging. Uh, and then followed it up with a similar thing called Refocus uh, a, a few years ago. It's a book about calling, what's God's calling upon our life. And when we look at that idea, what's God's calling, we ask him, God, what do you want me to do? Tell me left, tell me right, high, high, and I'll jump. Just define the map for me, God. That's what we're saying. What is my calling in life? And we, we're looking for a roadmap with waypoints along it. 
But God so seldom gives us a roadmap, does he? It's the least answered question in Christian life is, God, what do you want me to do? Because he doesn't treat us like slaves, he treats us like sons and daughters. He hasn't created the paradigm in the same way. He doesn't give us a roadmap all the time, he gives us a compass all the time. <laughs> Head true north. I've told you which way to go, go that way and I'm with you the whole way. Now and again, as we're walking, I'll confirm waypoints. But don't ask too far in advance because it's beyond you. And so people are getting frustrated with my book. They're saying, I've, I've come here, I want to know what God's will is for my life. And I say, well, I've, I've written, that's all I've written about. There's 100,000 words there. Read the book. Yeah, but it doesn't tell me what to do. It's very frustrating when people are expecting one thing with one mindset and, and the book's written with another mindset. It's the same when we come to Scripture. We come with one mindset. We're looking for evidence of creation or so on, and we find a poem. What's with Genesis 1? We're looking for a king and we find a cross and we're looking for a self-help book and we, get, we find out that I'm helpless. It depends what mindset we come to the book, we come to the scriptures with, if we're going to understand what it's trying to say and how it says it. Because the Bible is not a science manual, it never set out that way. The Bible, as opposed to scripture, now, now the Bible is scripture, don't hang me up just yet. But in the, in the New Testament, when Paul says every scripture is God-breathed, was he talking about what he just wrote? Because we call that scripture. He's in the New Testament, he's talking about the Old Testament, saying all scripture is God-breathed. So we just need to become a little less loose with terminology when we start to assess the book. Say, so what is it meaning and what did it mean to the people who read it at the time? So last week we put up a slide, and Noah, if you could just put up the slide there, I'll, I'll, that's one back from that. This is the big story. This is the story that Scripture is encompassing, or the Bible as we know it, written in the late 4th century, talks about. It starts off with the Garden, the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1. Then it goes through a whole story after the fall, the story of Israel, a story of struggle. The word Israel means struggles with God. And it's this book of people struggling with God and God struggling with people. God's people, they were supposed to be a sign of what it can look like, of the kingdom, a kingdom of priests they were supposed to be. It all turned pear-shaped in Exodus when they, when they rejected that offer of uh, engagement to God. Then we get to the cross and it's a story of Jesus, uh, how he began to find a way back. God the whole way promised, I'm, gonna get, I'm pursuing you, I'm going to bring you back. And Jesus was the, the way that would happen. He'd build a bridge between God and man again. And then the, the, the rest of the story is the, the fish, the, the two strokes. And the thing I love about this symbol of Christian life, God with us. So Jesus made a way for God to be with us again as he was in the garden. And the two, the two lines of the fish were the sign where they would welcome each other in secret. If, if I draw a line, an arc on the, on the sand and someone draws the other one, um, that's how we know that they're believers. And ixius, that word in Greek, also brought in a whole connection for them there. But, but, but where are people who struggle with God too? Just like the Old Testament, we struggle. We shouldn't, but we still do, because we're still broken and we're not back in the garden yet where we get to one day. But we struggle because God is with us. Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us, and said, I'm leaving now and another will come, the Spirit, so God is still with us. So he's as present with you now as he was with the disciples back in the gospel time. And yet we struggle with that because we still think like Old Testament. We still think like Israel. We still think, I've got to do this in my own strength. And so the struggle is still apparent, even though it shouldn't be. We should be at peace. We should be at rest. We should know joy, regardless of what the world is doing. So we go from a garden to a people to a cross to a new community and ultimately in Revelation back to the garden again, where God's eternal plan is never thwarted his original design is where we're going to end up back again one day, and we'll get to that in 31 sessions' time. But this, 
book, this Bible, is written in terms, was written then in terms that could be understood by those that it engaged with then. So whenever we're understanding or, or trying to interpret what it's saying, we've got to understand what it meant to them. Because it can't mean to us now what it didn't mean to them then. That's one of the fundamental, they call it hermeneutic principles. God's word can't say now what it didn't say once. And when it was told once, it meant something to the people who read it back then. So that doesn't mean scripture's irrelevant. It doesn't, well, that's just for those people back then. It just means we need to be wise and educated, discipled into how to read scripture. We, We need to mine down deep into the principles of scripture to understand. For example... A principle. Jesus is walking along. They come to him and say, should we pay taxes or not? They're, they're setting up a trap. Do we pay taxes to uh, Caesar or do we pay into the temple? Jesus goes to... They're trying to trap him in the detail of law. Uh, he Show me the coin. Whose head's on the coin? We'll pay to Caesar that which is Caesar, pay to God which is God. What's, what's the point, though? The bigger principle here is the question that he asked. Whose head is on that? Caesar's head. What's the inference there? If you understand how to read the scripture, the inference is whose imprint is on your life? Well, give to God, which is his. You are made in his image. Give your life to him. Those who listened to what Jesus was saying understood that completely as soon as he said it. Whose imprint is on the coin? Well, give to God that which is God's as well. You see what I mean? So the way that we read scripture isn't just through the way we would normally read it as Westerners. We've got to understand how to do that. So we begin, let's begin at the beginning. Genesis 1.1, put it back up on screen there, Marty. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we see the main player. The main player. This is big, because who is the main player not? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. And this whole story is God's upper story. There's, a, there's an upper story and there's a lower story. And the story begins with the upper story, who is God. It's about God. He's the main player. He is before all that we know. And all that we know came from his initiative and will. It's actually all about God. This story is his story. And our story fits within his story. So not life is not primarily or exclusively about us. And our life and our story won't make sense if it's removed from his because ours comes from his. And so Genesis depicts the creative purpose. This is the meaning of, of much of Genesis. It's, it's not depicting the how, it's depicting the why. What's going on here? It's, the, it's a, the creative purpose of our universe. So God's there, complete within himself. He's whole. He doesn't need creation. He doesn't need us. But as any parent would understand, there's something fulfilling, the fulfillment, the, 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 the blessing, the enablement, to have a child who is in your image somewhat, but free to choose. The joy of that, of creating life, developing life, life that you can engage with, it's like us and yet still unique. And this is what's unfolding now. This God who is love wants to love and engage with beings, personalities like us who have the choice to engage back with him. It's an incredible moment. So we hit movement number one. Movement number one is the Garden of Eden. And we'll just put up on screen there the, the little bit of a map. This is the ancient world. The ancient world apparently was a lot simpler than it is now. It's just black and white with a few lines. But um, uh, the red circle there is the, the, where most... There's arguments, because it's theologians, so they just argue. Um, 
Eden is essentially there. That's, that's what Eden, a modern day Basra, which is interesting if you understand all the wars and fighting happening. If it, whenever you hear Basra turn up, if you dug a hole in Basra, there's a good chance the charcoal and oil that you find underneath there may have come from the Garden of Eden because that's apparently where it's from. Another, another opinion says a bit nearer to um, Assyria and Nineveh there is, uh, is where Eden was. But the, the text does refer to the Euphrates and the Tigris. If you need some context, there's Israel above Israel and there's a, a fertile crescent they used to talk about back then. Above Israel is modern-day Syria. We have Iraq um, and Iran where Babylonia is there now. So it's almost bordering on modern-day Kuwait. Uh, interesting, there's a whole heap of oil there these days. And so this is a place and this is where the eternal story and the temporal story meet. It's a very interesting concept, Eden, this idea of Eden, which means uh, delight. It's essentially a definition of what paradise is. So paradise, eternal life, heaven equals all this same thing. The definition of it is where God dwells with man or humanity, which is a very interesting concept. It's, the, it's wrapped up in the idea of tabernacle as well. It's the idea of um, heaven and earth meeting, temporal and eternal joining together. It's the temple in the Old Testament. But what is it in the New Testament? It's actually you. You can now potentially be in Eden. It's within you. So all that we read about in Eden can actually become our experience as well. It's a really fascinating concept that runs from front to back in Scripture. What does it mean to have God dwell with us? And so Eden was a place that was essentially a, a place of cultivated perfection, a garden within an uncultivated world. The world was still perfect. God looked at it and said it's good. And yet, even as Adam was complete, he was, he was still to be completed through maturity. And so even though that which is created, which is good, can still be grown and matured even further. And so what I love about Genesis, though, is the, is the observation of God's method. Because if, if we can understand the hows and the whys behind what he does, then we can start to live as his co-laborers and sort of work in the same sorts of principles. So the method that we see in Genesis is what theologians call form and fill, which is funny because that's what concreters call it too. So concrete is that must be more like God than the rest of us. They form and fill. Form and fill. It's discipleship. If you've ever looked at the study of what is discipleship, it's forming and filling. You form in your own strength because we haven't got the strength in ourselves to do anything much. And yet we're called to have spiritual disciplines. So we're forming, we're creating a formwork in our life through our obedience that creates a space for God to fill. We form a loving life, so God can give us the love that we need to carry on that life. And this seems to be the partnership. And throughout the Bible and, and, and Christian life, you'll see that this whole dynamic of forming and filling, sometimes God forms and we fill, sometimes we form and he fills, sometimes, as in Genesis, he does both. But this seems to be the mechanism of, of growing and getting stronger and bigger. So, but the way we see it depicted in Scripture, and this is why it'll mess you up, is we're looking for a scientific mathematical sequence here, but he's, he's actually defining it in terms of a painting, forming and filling in terms of a painting. And I'm not talking about a Van Gogh slap and dash thing where we just let, let's get without form and break out of it. It's more like colour between the lines. Engineers love this stuff. It's like, just don't break outside of my boxes. We've drawn it there, just colour inside the lines. What, me watching my kids do colouring in when they were young, it just drove me nuts. It's like, there's a line, it's really simple, inside the line. You know, that's the way God does it. You do it. It's like, stay inside the lines. Anyway, so we see the outline and then we see the colouring in. So if you look at the sequence, 
through Genesis 1. You see day one. And we could spend a lot of time on what is a day. Okay? Uh, and we, we might just touch on it in a moment. But let's just look at what it's saying there happens in those days. Day one, the light and the darkness are formed. Day two, there's water and sky. Day three, there's land. So that's going from Genesis 1, 3 through to verse 11. But then it seems to flip back because then on day four, there's sun, moon and stars. On day five, there's fish and birds. On day six, there's animals and so on. But if you look at it in terms of form and fill, first three days are forming, second three days are filling. So day one, light and darkness. Day four, sun, moon and stars. You can see the correlation. He's formed, then he fills. He forms light and darkness, then he fills with sun, moon and stars. So the sequence is not how we're reading it. They call it a, a chiastic structure. It's all actually poetry and parallelism, if you want to know the detail of that. The way it's written is not the way we want to read it. it and, and it's all been done in hieroglyphs anyway, so it was, it, it was understood back then. So day one refers to day four, day two to day five, day three to day six. So he forms light and darkness, he fills with sun, moon and stars. He forms water and sky on day two. On day five, he fills with fish and birds. He forms on day three with land. He fills on day six with animals. And so we go through that process and he looks at his painting and he says, it's good. In fact, it's all good. It's really good. But what I love about, and this is the principle, this is the overarching principle, because the universe, the universe and the scenery and the fauna depicted there are not the point of the story. That's not why he's telling the story. The why is us. We become the pinnacle. Then God said, let us make mankind. Don't you love that? Let us. Why do we never cotton on to that? Let us. Who's he talking to? Remember last week I talked about the word one, ihad. Someone thought I said jihad. <laughs> ihad. Ehad. E-C-H-A-D, we would, we would spell it. Composite unity, many form one. And, there, and if you really dig into the Hebrew, that's really saying three, three form one. He's saying, let us, let Ihad make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. It's not he created male and then, then he created female who's not as the same identity, not the same hierarchy there. Very interesting. But the original Genesis created order is not the order that we grapple with after the fall. The, the co-regents, the detail is, is very much on the same level. I think I just lost half the, half the Baptists in the room. <laughs> so, so, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so... Same value, same capacity in the original design. Even my own little slang, and I get very loose with this sometimes. I, I just, because I'm a guy, I understand the foibles of men. We, we're just like machines, aren't we, sometimes? It's just like flick us on in the morning, wind us up, and we're off. Flick us off at night until we hurt somebody. You know, but women, they get relationships, and they, they get the nuance, and they... And they God exists, therefore I want to know God. Many go, God exists, what can I do for him? You know, it's like, I think, you think, man, if I can be generalist, you know, and I often am too much, I'd say, God did such a great job with women. They're just better humans. They're not. But <laughs> we've just, guys, we've just got to rise up a bit higher because the girls have really made 
They're, they're, doing, they're good humans, all right? Guys, we've got a go-kart night coming up in a couple of weeks, okay? And we're going to prove who the better humans really are. No, don't go down that rabbit warren, Pat. But guys, sign up. It's going to be an awesome night. I'm the target, okay? The, the goal is knock me off the track or beat me. That's the goal. All right, we're all clear on that. Image, so we're made as image bearers. What does that mean? Are we made in God's image? Does God look like me? Thank God, no. God is spirit. So, we, so God's image does not mean a physical appearance. It means there are, there are facets of his nature that he's imbued into us. We're volitional creatures. Volitional means we have capacity to make a choice. He made us that way. Very dangerous thing to put in the heart of a human being. The ability to choose. But without the ability to choose, we can't choose to love or not to love. So it was intrinsic that we had to have that. He's made us creative. We can't help ourselves. I don't have a good day unless I can create something, even if it's a circle on a piece of paper. Just, I've got to do something that means, look what I did. We create things because it, it's, it's woven into our DNA to make progress, to invent Apple phones and to, to have networks and skyscrapers. and That's all going to be in heaven too because he's made us creative. And it's part of our original mandate to grab creation, to steward it well, to, to cultivate it, and let's keep building. Let's keep building on this. We're relational. We're eternal. We're eternal, which means, as Ecclesiastes 3 says, eternity is woven into the hearts of men, but they can't figure out what God's trying to do. It's like those of us who aren't connected to God through salvation. It's like we know eternity exists. I don't know what to do with it. I don't understand it, so I'll call it the universe, or I'll call it a tree or something, but I, I know there's more to me and more to this than what we see. We're eternal. And we also know instinctively this whole idea of a moral compass. We know that true north is that way. We're not supposed to murder someone. Somehow we know that, even though it makes absolutely no sense unless there's a God, unless there's universal morality. Nothing we do would matter. We could go out there and we could kill 50 people, but something in our heart repels at that which is almost, almost doesn't make evolutionary sense if I was going to stick to that. It doesn't make evolutionary sense so many of the things that we do. The fact that I wake up in the morning and I love to see a sunrise. Well, that's wasting time. I should be out killing an ox. But there's something in my soul that just appreciates beauty. Where's that come from? It's woven into the hearts of humanity. It's God making us in his image. Dolphins, as far as we can tell, don't do that. They're pretty smart. They've got a big brain, but they don't do this and, and long for the same sorts of things that we do. Maybe if we can interpret their squeaks, we'll find out differently. But Scripture's pretty clear that the pinnacle of, of creation is you and I. And so Genesis 1 is not a science book, but an explanation of what matters, value and purpose. And there is wriggle room in the text, and, and we'll have pretty polarised opinions in the room, and I don't, I don't run away from these sorts of things about is it young earth, or is it old earth? Um, uh, and you can look in the Hebrew, the more, and there's, there's, there's great arguments for both sides of that, and there's a lot of complicated um, discussion in the middle that encompass both. The reality is, scriptures, Scripture, if you read the Hebrew and the way it's written, there actually is room in there. There's a bit of wiggle room in the original language uh, for it to be either. Um, but it hasn't gone out of its way to explain that. I know there are implications of that. For example, if uh, there was life and death before the Genesis account, 
for example, then we've got a theological problem uh, because death came in with Adam's fall. So we've got to define, well, what is death? How does this work? So th- this is not a simplistic, let's just lambastically say this is my side. This is a thing where there's, there's room for us to ongoingly have a, a good conversation. But what the point of the story is here, as I said last week, the point is at some point in time and space, God created humanity and said, I'm going to breathe my identity, my image and my spirit and I'm defining a created order that relies on the fact that humanity partners and lives intrinsically with God to fulfil their purpose. That's sort of the point, the big point of what it's trying to say. If God wants to write a science manual one day, I'm sure he could and we'll go, oh, that's how he did it. Because he could, he could, if he wanted to, create a, an earth that looks old. Not a problem. He could create a universe that looks many billions of years. That's just not, not a problem to him. He could do that. So it, it may be six physical days. Um, I wasn't there. So I don't know. We, can, we, we, can, we have our theories, don't we? we? We've all read our books. But we weren't there. And all we have is, is what Moses wrote down quite briefly that wasn't attempting to explain that. So it's, I don't think it's something that we should easily go to war about. Um, but there's room for grace, there's room for intelligent conversation, and, and I don't think we've found out all there is yet to know about this. But the other great design element that comes into this is just the way he did it. I'm talking about the value now and the purpose of, of creation. Why did God even do that? The whole point there that God's desire was to have a people who would love. But love has to have a choice, and herein lied the problem. Because true love can only exist in the presence of an option not to love. So therefore, he had to build into the whole design free will and choice. And that's where it can all go pear-shaped, which it did in Genesis 2 and 3. 3. Where we made the decision not to follow, the decision to to separate from that partnership. But then he forms these two trees in the garden. And they were physical trees, they were real trees, and they were also very symbolic trees. First tree was a tree of life, which represented eternity with God. And we were allowed to eat of that, the fruit of that tree. And that tree really was all about living from the power and the presence of God. That's what the tree was there for. It's eternal life. That tree comes again at the end of the book in, in Revelation 21. The tree's back. Oh, this is a tree from Eden, same tree. And they're, and they're freely eating of the fruit uh, of that tree. And it brings life and eternal life. And then there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Haven't we all said at some point, did you have to put that tree there? Like, if he hadn't put that tree there, things would be very different. But true love can only exist in the, pre- in the presence of a choice not to love. And so this tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents self-determination. It represents the option to disentangle ourselves from the created order. From the order that says, I, I live through faith and reliance on this God who walks with me. It's to say, I can choose not to do that. I'm choosing to be the judge myself. I know you say you're the judge. And up to this point, where we get to Genesis 3, where up to that point, God's made all the choices. God's done it the way he sees fit. And in the end, he creates humanity and goes, now it's not just good, this is very good. This is the pinnacle. Look at this. And he must have sat back and held his breath. I don't know how long the gap was between the meeting of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. But there would have just been that moment. And if you've ever read uh, within the... um, it's actually contained within the Apocrypha. Uh, there's a book called the Book of Enoch. Uh, and Enoch was the one who ended up just walking into heaven. Uh, only human to do that. 
But Enoch was actually alive when Adam was alive. Adam was still alive when Enoch walked the earth. And fascinating, uh, you can read the insights, in that, and it's not scripture the way we read scripture, but it's, it's an interesting narrative in there. It just talks about uh, the sadness and the groaning of, of, of someone who was alive for so long after he'd known what Eden was like, to, live, to go from Eden into the life that we know it now, and, and just how thoroughly depressing that must have been. Because this is all we know, but Adam knew what it was like before as well. And so we had to make these choices and, and, these, and this choice was to come away. The choice was to come away and say, no, I want to be the judge of what's right and wrong. I want to make my mind up and I want to do it from my own strength anymore. And I, uh, now, and, 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 I, and this is actually, if, if Jesus was telling this story, he'd say, this is actually the definition of what unbelief is. When I talk about unbelief, it's Genesis 3. Unbelief says, I'm not relying on you anymore. I'm not living from you anymore. I'm determining how high and how far I need to go. I'm determining righteousness. I'm earning righteousness off my own bat. And I'm defining whether or not I can earn my way into heaven or not. Jesus calls all of that unbelief. And his call is repent, believe. These are the emphases of the New Testament. Turn away from that nonsense. Turn back to me and rely on me. So the book, when you read it in its entirety, actually makes perfect sense. But this, the implications of this Genesis moment are the things that we know that we feel like we can't get away from, the unforgiveness, the pride and the prejudice, the competition, the humanism, the, the, all that stuff, the separation that comes from judgment, all the pain, all the brokenness, all the sickness. It comes from this moment. And the tragedy of the next 11 chapters of Genesis as, uh, until we get to Abraham and Isaac is just the way this begins to play out, this rebellion in humanity plays out. It's part of our DNA now. It's, it's inherited now. Now it's almost like, you know, I might inherit my father's bad cholesterol. We, we, we inherit sin. We're born with this stuff now. Psalm 51 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Broken, not complete yet. Got to find a way back to God. But the almost unbelievable sort of overarching point of Genesis, particularly Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is that God wants to be with us. We were created for this fellowship with God. He wants that. The pinnacle of his, his creation was us dwelling with God in this place called Eden. And so he designed us to be complete in him and our brokenness will lead us away. But even, even today with humanity, as it shakes its fist in, in rebellion at God and unbelief, he still pursues. As soon as the fall happened. He, he started planning a way back. He started finding a way because we could never do it ourselves. That I'm, gonna, I'm pursuing you till the end of time as you know it. And he, and he seeks after humanity again, fulfilled through Jesus. But the point of this, you think, what's, what, how does this relate to my life? How do I read this? I've got to ask myself this every day. As someone, I'm fairly motivated. I'm fairly focused. I like to get things done. I'm actually pretty shocking at that. It's a problem for me. <laughs> it's a problem for a lot of us. That can very easily equal unbelief. That can very easily equal self-determination. How was your day, Pat? Oh, it was good, I got this and this done. Good for you, mate. Or should my idea of a good day be, I got to walk with Jesus today. You know, I messed it up now, but, but I knew he was there the whole time and I got to breathe in his presence and I got to talk with him and share with him and we talked about the issues together and he, he, he guided me and he encouraged me, he gave me joy in the midst of the storm and that's a good day. doesn't matter what we've done. And so I've got to look at this and go, am I any different from Adam? He ran away. 
The first thing he did when he, when he bit of the fruit was to recognise, now I'm judging myself by performance and I look at myself and I'm not squaring up too well. Let's find a tree to hide behind. Let's find some fig leaves or something to hide myself because now I'm comparing myself against my own self-determined judgment and I'm feeling shame. And it's her fault anyway. <laughs> Throw someone else under the bus. That's not a result of godly fruit when we do that. You know, and I look at this, I go, am I any better than Adam? Am I doing the same stuff? Even now, after all that I know and all that I read and the, and the, and the nearly 40 years I've walked with Jesus, am I still, am I still any better? When I first got saved, I used to read the Old Testament and go, these guys are nuts. How could they possibly reject what God did? And I look at my life now and I go, I don't think I'm any better than, any, than the worst of them. Day by day, sometimes we can go through a whole day if we're not careful without talking to Him, without relying on Him, without acknowledging His breath. He's there. He, he could not have given us a stronger icon in our life of His presence, our breath, literally our breath. Am I any better than Adam? I still run away. I still feel shame. I still sin. I still do too many things without relying on Him. Are you running away? I wonder if you're running away too. Are you leaning away from God more than you're leaning in? Because Jesus defines spiritual life really simply. Just believe. Just rely. Just stop and rely. This insane lifestyle that we have. Insane lifestyle. The expectations on ourselves. The expectations on each other. The expectations on government and, and industry. All these sorts of things. Stop that. Rely on God. Live simply. I wonder what faith looks like for you now. What would it look like for you to be Adam and get this right and live from the tree of life, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? How would that look for you today? Are you running away from God? Let's pray into that now as the band comes up. Lord, the, the truth of this, it's, it's too hard for us. We, we, we all look at that and we have to look away. We all say, yeah, we're guilty. And yet, Lord, you don't say that with an accusatory voice to say, you know, you say it with an invitation to come back. Just turn around. Just turn from what you're doing and lean on me again because the offer is there and the ability and the means are there. Jesus is with us. So God, we recognise your presence here within each of us in the breath that we breathe and in the atmosphere in this room, Lord, that you fill this place. And all we need to do is breathe. All we need to do is stop. All we need to do is forgive. All we need to do is stop judging ourselves and judging the people around us. All we need to do is just stop all of that and remember, God, you're with me. Through the pain, through the disappointment, through the busyness, through all the expectations upon us. So Father, we repent. We turn around. We turn away. We change the way we're thinking. We don't want to live from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We want to live from the tree of life. And so Father, we eat of that fruit. Metaphorically speaking, Lord, we choose to rely on you Lord, I just pray into the deep parts of each soul that's here. Lord, I'm just feeling the, the sense of reality that's coming upon so many of us, the sense of eternity, the sense that God is with me. And I want to lift shame off the room. God brings no, there's no benefit to any of us or Him if we just feel guilty. He wants to bring life. He, his offer has always been life. So Lord, we breathe that life in. The acceptance, the design, joy, the hope and the purpose that comes from you. Father, we accept that. We love that. We rely on that. And we love you. Father, thank you for this fellowship and a moment in the week to stop and hear your truth again.